Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Rooftop Podcast. Uh, we are continuing the uh, the East Palestine series, the buried stories of East Palestine. This is the whole idea here is that on the Rooftop Podcast, we spend so much time talking about how we lead at a community-based level, how we lead from the bottom up, how we lead when nobody's coming, how we lead when we get tapped on the shoulder. And, you know, all of these things are things that you're probably facing right now, or you have faced, or you will face when that pivotal moment shows up in your life, uh, or the movement that you want to build. And it's really just about unpacking that and talking to leaders who can give us perspective on that. And, and certainly the gentleman that I have with me today is no exception. Um, Chris Neifer is the superintendent of East Palestine School System. Is that right, Chris? That's correct, Scott. Yeah. And um, he and I had the opportunity to meet when I was uh, out visiting the, uh, the the leaders of East Palestine following the, the chemical spill that happened there as a result of the Norfolk Southern train derailment. And Chris and I just, I don't know, we immediately connected. He, he's, he's a, you can just tell that he's a professional student of leadership um, he's, he's got a thirst for it. He, he demonstrates it every day, but he's always looking for new ways to do it. And, and so he and I really hit it off as, as I was walking around the town and just talking to different leaders and trying to get just the real context of what was going on and, and how they see the situation. And it's so much that you'll learn from, from Chris. I know I did and still do. Um, as soon as I spent five minutes with him. I'm like, dude, you need to do a TED talk because uh, what you have to say on leadership could could really, really change the world. So uh, Chris, thank you for being on, brother. It's good to have you here. Oh, Scott, thanks for giving me the opportunity. Uh, you know, I really enjoyed the time we spent uh, when you stopped down here. And and uh, yeah, I mean, I agree. We, you know, we hit it off and there were, oh, sorry, my phone's ringing over here. Never stop, okay. does it? Um, no, man. But but yeah, I just I just appreciated the time. So So glad to get a chance to catch up with you again. Yeah, well, let's jump right into it. Um, you know, one of the things that I I think I, I ask every guest that we have on from East Palestine, and we're interviewing leaders who, like you, have have a title and they're operating at that formal level. But then, you know, we've interviewed DJ, and we're going to have Matt Werner on leaders who are leading at the informal leadership level as well. Because, as you know, better than anybody, it takes both. It takes formal and informal leaders, leaders without titles to stand shoulder to shoulder with those who are leading at the formal level. So, but one of the questions I'm asking consistently, Chris, and I'd like to throw it over to you is what would, what, what's something about the chemical spill or just the events around that before, during, or after? What's something about that from your point of view that would really surprise people outside of East Palestine if they knew it? You know, I, I think, Probably the the biggest thing, and I don't know how much of a surprise, but in my position as as superintendent, you know, kids never fail to amaze me. You know, the resiliency that we've seen from our kids. You know, we run preschool through twelfth grade, so I've got kids here as young as three. You know, as old as as eighteen, going on nineteen, um, and to just watch the resiliency of our kids to battle through some of this and to get some of their perspective on what's going on. You know, Scott, I think I shared the story with you when you were here. You know, we were off for, for a week. You know, this whole thing happened on on uh, Friday, uh, Friday evening. And, and the whole next week we were off school and we came back on that following Monday um, in the hopes to try to provide kids as much normalcy and consistency and get back to school. Um, but with the traumatic events that happened here, we, we didn't know exactly what that looked like. 
Uh, we tried right. to train up our staff. You know, we had some some conversations with them to provide them some strategies from some of our mental health people. Um, but the real surprise to me were the kids. You know, they got back here. They just wanted to see their teachers. They wanted to see their friends. They just wanted to smile and get back to their business because they've been dealing with adult stress for the last week. And this piece was missing from their lives. You know, 10 o'clock that morning, I got a phone call from one of my rock star teachers that said, hey, Chris, the kids want to talk to you. Can you can you come and talk to them? Um, so give me a half an hour. I'll be over. So I walked into a class with about 30 to 35 juniors and seniors in it. And the minute I walked in the door, they just Mr. Knifer, Mr. Knifer, can we this? Can we that? Can we? And they just start. I had to stop them because they were just rolling. So they wanted to make sure that they could take control of what happened to them. They had a whiteboard at the front of their room from one end <laughs> to the other, just full of ideas of things they wanted to do. And, yeah. and they they did them. I mean, in the course of the last six weeks, this group of kids has put together a 58 minute documentary already done, published. It's out. It's on our YouTube channel of what this whole event meant to them. Wow. You know, and, and it's so wow. it's that resiliency piece. It's it's that ability for kids to say, you know what? we got this, right? We got this. This happened around here. It is what it is. We're not going to be victims. As adults, we would not allow them to be victims here in the school district. And and we turned it into as many educational opportunities as we could. And and so we're going to do that. That was something that really, I loved hearing you say that when we first met, it was one of the first things you said to me that you wanted to be sure you communicated. And, And I love the way that you lead with that and that your kids demonstrated that. And, you know, thinking you and I talked a lot about well, first of all, I'd love to get a, 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 a link to that documentary and we'll put it on our show notes and we'll push it far and wide. OK, uh, great. I'll get it to you. Absolutely. Uh, so that's a note to Wes to get that in the show notes and we'll we'll push that thing out there. But, you know, one of the things that you had talked about was with the kids. My goodness, I mean, two plus years of covid uh, and, you know, just starting to get that behind them. And then and then this kicked off. You know, I have to think that that was probably some rocket fuel uh, for them to to reclaim that agency and get their lives back. Sure. I mean, it, it just, and again, positive, negative, you can take COVID for what it was, um, but it certainly was a learning experience, right? I mean, we changed a lot in education. You know, our learning curve was great in education because it had to be, you know, we had to shift on a dime and, and make our jobs, what we do look completely different. You know, we started to educate kids via the computer, right? We started to educate kids who weren't here with us. Um, And then came the time where, you know, we had to then try to fill in those gaps, right? We got the kids back to brick and mortar buildings, but it didn't look the same as it did, you know, a year before that. So we had to adjust to that as well. And, and, you know, we can't lose sight of the fact that not only was the learning curve great for us as educators, but the learning curve was great for kids as well, because they had to make that shift. You know yeah. what I mean? The the okay. environment looked okay. different for them. And and I think that that was, again, positive or negative. COVID was 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 a help in this process. It helped to prepare us for the ability to, again, shift on a dime. You know, here we were, got to close school down for a week. Here we are dealing with some families that still six weeks later are displaced from their homes. Um, yeah. We have some others that are still in, in fear, understandably in fear of the environment and kids aren't coming to school. So now here we are again, 
run in two different environments. I got 900 kids coming to school here. I got another 100 kids that are online. You know, so, yeah. so now here we are running two separate educational entities to try to make sure we're meeting the needs of all of our kids. Um, right. I don't think we would have been able to be as successful as we're being right now if it wasn't for the COVID experience. Yeah. And that's really a mindset thing, isn't it, Chris? I mean, that because I agree with you. I, I know one of the things we talk about at Rooftop a lot is that our struggles are what prepare us for the next thing, you know, and it's it's a biological necessity, but it really comes down to how we choose to think about it in terms of our mindset, right? Sure, sure, absolutely. And and you get into these events and, and you get to see people's true character. You know, you put people in a stressful situation and you get to see who they are. Um, and and proud to say that my my group here really has stepped up to the plate. You know, my my staff has, has done an amazing job from making the shifts in in how we're educating kids to just being able to love and take care of our kids. You know, that week we were off, you know, we were dealing with stuff here that never in a million years that I think as a school superintendent, I'd be dealing with. Um, But because the command center and the Red Cross shelter and all that was happening in our district, that had to be my primary concern because it was what, what was right in front of me. And my administrative team and my staff took care of our kids and they weren't even here. They took in donations. They went to they they created caravans and went to hotels and went and met with families and met with kids and set up game nights and movie nights and just went and did all this stuff. So they made sure that they could take care of our kids. So so you know that character from different people you know really showed me who I have here as a staff, uh, and it was really helpful to make sure that that we know that and, and that we thank them for the work that they did. Yeah. No, I love it, man. Well, let's swing it back to. Pre, you know, let's take it. Let's take it way back to to you growing up and a little bit about your background and and how you came into education and ultimately uh, as an administrator. Like, t- talk us through your backstory a little bit so that we get to know uh, one of the men that had to lead through this thing. Well, sure. I mean, funny enough, I kind of backed my way into where I am now. Um, you know, went to college. My my dad was a was a teacher. My my mom was a, an educational assistant, and and I was always told that education was not where I should be. Education was not where I belonged. Um, you know, with the way that numbers and I get along really well, um, my my maternal and paternal grandfather both uh, pushed me into engineering, and I spent a year and a half at, at YSU in engineering, and it just wasn't for me. Um, I ended up graduating with a degree in chemistry. Uh, combined sciences and uh, was actually out trying to figure out where I fit in the world once I graduated. And uh, I was coaching at the time, coaching baseball, and was given the opportunity to take a uh, a substitute position as a teacher uh, and just fell in love with it. Um, so went from there, kind of backed my way in, went back and got my education degree while I was teaching. Um, got that taken care of and kind of backed my way into, I, I had a great mentor uh, in Bill Mullane. Uh, who was my principal at the time at, at Warren Harding High School. Uh, he kind of pushed me towards that administrative direction because of some of the things that uh, we had done together, um, extracurricular programs, coaching, uh, some of the different curricular things that we did at the state level. Um, and I always said that as I, I got into administration in, in Warren, uh, that superintendent something I would never do. It's not a job that I wanted. It's not anything that that I thought would be um you know, kind of in my path, if you will. I enjoyed being with the kids. I enjoyed being in the buildings, really enjoyed the educational side of things. And uh, when I moved here to East Palestine as the high school principal eight years ago, um, 
you know, my path just kind of took a, a a different branch, if you will. Uh, the superintendent that was here at the time kind of really took me under her wing. And, and when she left after my third year, uh, the board offered me the opportunity. And, and again, always said I wouldn't be a superintendent. I didn't even have my superintendent's license. Um, but they were pretty adamant about the fact that they thought I was the guy for the position. So I, I did go ahead and accept it with the thought that I'll give you a year. We'll try and figure this out, uh, if you will. Um, so it just kind of fell into place. Um, it's kind of how I've gotten my way through education. Things have just kind of fallen into that place. Um, you know, been here for five years, got went back and got my uh, superintendent's license uh, during the course of the last four years, why we were going through COVID, why I was leading the district. Um, and, and here we are. So it certainly isn't where I would have pictured my life. And it's kind of a, a running joke in my family that I'm where I am based on where I started. Um, but I've just kind of always found myself in that that leadership position, if you will. Um, I've always kind of just gotten to that point, maybe even if it wasn't my goal. Um, it's just kind of where I've ended up. Got it. That's that's really cool. Um, what was a, a day in the life like for you, Chris, before the derailment? What did it kind of, you know, just day to day, what did your what did your day kind of look like as you navigated your day? I just want to kind of get a sense of, you know, life before and after, you know, that this event. Sure. So, so sitting in the superintendent's position, especially in a small district, you know, I wear a lot of different hats. You know, I came from a much larger district, uh, you know, one of the larger urban eight in the, in the state of Ohio. Um, and being in a small district, there's really a lot that, that you have to take care of because I, you don't have a whole lot of people here. Right. So some days my focus is curriculum. Some days my focus is business. You know, it really just kind of, of depends, but I, I always try to make sure throughout the course of, of a normal day that I try and get at least some time, even if it's 15 minutes, contact with the kids. You know, that that's the reason we're here. It's the reason I, I got into doing what I do. And, and it's, you know, the reason for us attempting to continue to be successful every day. So when I'm not in, in meetings or trying to get things, things planned um, or, or getting some of those mandates for the state taken care of, uh, it's important, whether it's, you know, going into a kindergarten classroom and reading or spending some time in the chemistry lab, which was my old home before I took over, you know, this kind of position. You know, that's a that was a typical day, you know, it, meetings, taking care of what's on your plate. Um, and, and that certainly has changed a lot going into uh, the last month and a half for sure. Yeah, man. And and so now if we could, Chris, I'd love to pivot into the moments that led up to that bitterly cold Friday night uh, where you found yourself responding to uh, an event that you never saw coming. Talk us through kind of the moments leading up to that. If you could kind of paint the picture, maybe even at a sensory level to help us kind of understand what it looked and felt like and sounded like. Sure. Sure. So it was uh, a, it was a Friday night. Um, actually the first phone call I got was about 9, 15, 9 30 from my athletic director. You know, we had a home basketball game here that night. Um, the head coach who lives downtown, pretty close to where the tracks are, had called the athletic director and said, Hey, there's something going on downtown. Um, my road's blocked off. I can't get home. Do you mind if me and the family hang out at the school for a little while until it all gets, you know, taken care of? So at that point, no idea the magnitude of what was going on. He just wanted to make sure that I knew what was going on. Um, sure, certainly cleared that, not a problem. 
Uh, and then about 20 minutes later, and it was funny because I had said to my wife that, you know, that was odd. I hadn't heard anything, you know, about the fact that they were shutting down part of downtown. You know, usually those are things that I would hear, whether it's through social media or a text message or a phone call. And about 20 minutes later, one of my board members, who happens to be a first responder, he's a he's a police officer here in town, called and said, you know, hey, Chris, we we had a huge accident. He said, and we we may need the schools. You know, we may need to open up um, a shelter so we have some place to evacuate people while we get this figured out. Um, you know, can you do an all call for us? Can you use our phone system just to kind of let people know, hey, if you live in this area, we need you to evacuate and let people know that we're opening the schools for a shelter. No problem. So as you said, very cold night. So I threw some clothes in a bag because I didn't know what I was going to be running into here and uh, made that that phone call for the first responders and jumped in the truck and headed out here. Um, and I got to be about, it was probably about eight miles from here, and I could already see the cloud of smoke. Um, so kind of gave me a little bit of, of understanding. As I got a little bit closer, I started to realize there was a whole lot of cars moving in the opposite direction from the direction that I was moving in. Um, started to make it a little bit more real for me. And then I got about three and a half miles away at a relatively high spot coming into town, and I could see the flames already from there. Um, so then it started to become very real. So got to the school, we got things opened up, got confirmation that the Red Cross was coming that night. Um, this was probably about 10.30, 10.40 at this point that I got to school. Uh, and I just, I got here, walked inside. Some of my admin team was already here. We had some staff members and some kids who lived down in that area that had already been evacuated. So at that point, we rallied the troops and, and you know, didn't know exactly when Red Cross was coming. So we started doing our own thing. I had staff members and students grabbing chairs and tables, getting stuff set up in the gyms, trying to find a warm place. And then I went outside and started helping to direct traffic, um, you know, getting people into where we needed, trying to answer questions, um, trying to field stuff and get information from the first responders. Uh, you know, the more information you have, the easier a situation becomes. So, so that really was the situation for the next two or three hours until the Red Cross got here and was able to start to help out with that. Uh, one of the other big things that occurred too, and again, I mentioned a little bit earlier about, you know, talking true character. You know, I, I called my my maintenance and transportation supervisor. They, they need some help with this evacuation process. Every single one of my bus drivers showed up down here, jumped in a bus and drove towards the accident. You know, went down to see what they could do. Could they help evacuate people? Could we get people to the shelter? What could we do? Because at that point, we still didn't know exactly the magnitude of, of what we were dealing with. So so that was all reaction. It was just a matter of, of making sure that we were supporting as many people as we could and providing the supports to our first responders who were really down, you know, in the mess. You know, we were a mile and a half away. I felt fairly safe where we were. Having seen some of the pictures and some of the things going on down there, I can't imagine what those you know men and women were going through that were actually on scene trying to deal with the with the process. Yeah, you know, Chris, I've always I've been around leadership a long time. You know, thirty years I've been around. You know, some of the best leaders on the planet, and you know, I always my my father always taught me. You know, that one of the quickest ways to assess a leader is a leader who passes. Uh, the credit and takes all the responsibility, which you you just did, like you just talked about what all your folks did. But I find it striking that I think it was Matt Warner when we were meeting with you, he said, you know, he drove down to see what was going on. And there's Chris, the superintendent of schools, 
out there in the bitter cold directing traffic. Uh, and he just kind of, it, it took him back. You know, he, it, it, like it really, it stuck with him. And, you know, I, I, I've always been taught that a, a true leader puts herself or himself wherever they can best control the situation and be the most relevant. Um, how, and you did that, even though it was probably what a lot of leaders would not have done. What was going through your mind at this, at this moment when there's lots of information missing, there's chaos, there's lives at risk? What's going through your mind? How are you kind of focusing and prioritizing your efforts? You know, for me, it was just a matter of, of trying to make sure that we could provide a safe environment for East Palestine. You know, this is, you know, these are, these are my kids, you know, these are my families. And right now, what I did know is it wasn't safe down there. So if we could do something here as a school to open our doors and provide that safe space while they try to get this figured out, that was our first priority. That was our top priority. And again, I had staff here. My administrative team was here. I mean, I had janitors, I think, spent 90 hours here over the course of, you know, five or six days. Um, wow. Again, just making sure that we could provide shelter, food, um, you know, just a safe, warm place while we get this stuff figured out. And and that yeah. was our first priority. I wasn't, you know, I I had absolute faith in our first responders that they were going to do everything in their power to take care of down there. And this was the best way that I could support at this point for, for my community. So clear, so focused, and you didn't try to overreach. You just focused on the task at hand. Um, what did you feel? I always like to ask leaders this one after a crisis. Um, what were you not prepared for? Um, I, I wasn't prepared probably two things. The biggest one was was probably the media presence. Hmm. You know, our focus was let's let's provide this opportunity. And, and within an hour or two, I was. I don't want this to sound negative, but I was fighting with media who wanted to come in and interview people that were in the gym. And all these people wanted to do was find a safe place and take a deep breath because their world had just been turned around. I mean, people were literally told get yourself and get out. People left their pets in their house, in their homes. People yeah. left without packing bags. People, they got out, jumped in buses, jumped in cars and came here or went other places. It, it just wasn't in my opinion. And I know the media has its place and its job to do, but it right now that wasn't the time in my, in my opinion. So really kind of making sure that I wasn't crossing any lines, but trying to set up an environment where, you know, the media could, could be uh, without it interfering with the, the issues that people were having at that point. Um, sure. So we did end up setting up a, a place in, in one of our other rooms in the building so that we had a home for media and trying to, trying to control that piece. That Got was it. probably the biggest shock to me at that point. And over the course of the next three or four days, the, the media circus that occurred here, um, and, and it's probably just my lack of experience in that area, but that media circus to me was probably the biggest issue that we encountered. Yeah, that's a really good one. And I've seen it time and time again, particularly organizations, small communities are just not, it's, it's hard to be, the media swoops in on something like that. It's hard to be prepared for that, honestly. And even if you are, it can get out of hand really fast. So the fact that you were able to, to keep them at bay away from the folks that were just trying to process their life, probably the best you could have done. Um, 
what was life like for you as a superintendent, like immediately following that? You said the next week. Can you kind of talk through, because I, I it, my assessment spending time with you was that it has abated a lot. You know, there's there's been some return to normalcy here. But what was life like for you after the event? So, you know, that that first, say, week while we were closed down, you know, there was a there was just a lot of of making sure that we were doing the right things. Right. My my primary concern is to educate students. Right. That's what we do as a school district. And I needed to make sure that we could do that efficiently, but we could also do it safely. You know, so a lot of time, you know, there's some wonderful, wonderful people that were here during that time and are still here in East Palestine trying to do what's best. You know, the the Ohio EPA, the federal EPA, you know, the National Guard, the governor's office, lieutenant governor's office. I mean, we've got a lot of people that are supporting us and trying to make this right. You know, the accident is what it is. We can't go back and change that. But we're trying to make sure that we do everything in our power to make sure we come out better on the other side. And and really those big pieces, we're just trying to make sure that that I communicate with the right people, that we do it consistently, that we're looking at the science, we're looking at the data, and we're making the best decisions for our staff and our students. You know, that was probably one of the toughest decisions I've had to make in 20 some years of education is, is it safe to open school? Is it okay? I bring a thousand people to this campus every day. Is it okay to do that? Am I making the right decisions? Am I looking at, do I have enough information to make that decision happen? And then those people who aren't comfortable with the decision, because you know, as a leader, Scott, you never please everyone, right? Um, How do I support those other people? Because I've got to look at the longevity of my district now. You know, if I make a decision that upsets a hundred families and I lose those hundred families, I've now put my district in a really bad spot. So we needed to make sure that we did what we felt was best in communicating with all of the experts that were out there. And we continue to do that to this day, looking at all of the different soil and water and air quality sampling and keeping tabs on what's going on downtown with the cleanup process. And then again, doing things like setting up an online learning environment for those people who just can't be here. So really trying to meet everybody's needs um, effectively has really been our focus for the last, geez, what has it been? Almost two months now. Right. And, and you know, like you said, I mean, a, a lot of these, well, these concerns are obviously legitimate concerns. There are things that you simply don't know and you won't know for a while, despite the, the best in, intentions. Um, and managing that, I, I assess, would, would be particularly challenging to, to deal, you know, to kind of deal with both camps, so to speak. One thing you did point out to me, though, that I think got buried in a lot of the the narratives, the sound bites that were out there, is that whether it's the you know the Norfolk Southern Command Center, and I and I saw it myself, or the EPA, the, the Ohio EPA, all of the individuals and organizations that are working the cleanup and and trying to deal with the problem they're right there at ground zero. Like they're not doing it from Pittsburgh or, you know, even Youngstown, like they are right there with no masks on, no, no pro gear um, working alongside the people of East Palestine uh, in the space where it occurred. And, and it, is that a statement of fact? It It is Scott. I mean, and that was one of the things that, that I kind of used as we talked with people, you know, that the event happened on Friday night, they had their incident command closer down there by Sunday. 
when they were still trying to figure out they had five cars burning, they were, they were going to have to breach one of them with the controlled burn. Um, that area down there became less of a, a safe environment and they were looking to move and where they moved was here. You know, they moved back to our campus. They set up incident command in my elementary school, you know? So these are the people who, who know best, right? These are the experts. If they felt safe coming here, that certainly helped in our decision-making process. And knowing that Wednesday when they lifted the evacuation after the controlled burn and all that, you know, they set up a new incident command because I needed to open schools back up. You know, they moved a half a mile back towards that, um, you know, ground zero, if you will. So that certainly did play a role. And, and the other piece to it, like like you said, those they're here every day, you know, and, and their communication with us and their their ability to allow us to to be a part of what's going on. I mean, even when incident command was here, you know, I'm the local school superintendent. What do I have to do with a train derailment? But their command center, I was welcome to come in and make sure that I knew what was going on, to be a part of conversations, to have my questions answered. At no point in time did anybody ever say, look, Chris, we don't have time for you right now. We got more important things to do. You know, and that was all all played a major piece into, into what was going on. And again, the fact that those people are still here and integrating into our community and doing those things, those things all certainly help as well. We, Chris, we have a lot of leaders that dial into this podcast who they, they take their craft very seriously in various industries. We have superintendents and teachers on here. We have senior administrators from other organizations. We have university faculty and administrators that watch this. Thinking about what you've gone through, what your people have gone through, what you've learned, what advice would you give uh, a superintendent or a senior administrator um, watching this right now about what you've learned from this whole process for as it pertains to their world? You know, for me, probably the biggest, so the biggest problem that I've encountered and the biggest positive both revolve around the same thing and that's communication. You know, when, when this whole piece hit and, and I talked about the media and being overwhelmed and, and, you know, we got to the point where, where I brought in a PR firm that we'd worked with before um, just to try and help to manage all of the questions and all of the interview requests and all of the, I had to bring somebody in to help with that because while I knew that communication was important, my, again, primary focus had to be on the kids and making sure we were running the school district efficiently. So trying to juggle those two, again, as a small district, I wear a lot of hats anyways. The train derailment added some more hats to that, and I couldn't keep all the, all the plates spinning, if you will. Um, so, so that communication piece became extremely important and trying to streamline that. Um, making sure I was communicating not only with the media and trying to control that narrative, we know what happens when you don't. Um, and yeah. we saw it happen, the fear mongering and those types of things. It was real. You know, I really struggled to watch things like the national news. Again, I know people have jobs to do, but living it here and watching what was being reported was disheartening at times, you know, to, yeah. to find out this, this small community here was being labeled toxic town USA. Um, you know, little Chernobyl, you know, you just added a whole nother facet to what I have to do now and try to save our reputation. 
you know, try to make this a place. I got people who won't come here. We have companies that won't come here and service us. We have other schools that won't come here and participate in events. You know, that had a lot to do with the media portrayal and the communication. Mm. You know, the other negative, too, and it's probably the biggest mistake that I made through this is rushing and not choosing my words so wisely in in one statement that was made. Um, And it revolved around cleaning the buildings here. Um, You know, I was always taught when you communicate, you know, people have short attention spans. You know, we do all calls pretty frequently, try to keep them to a minute, a minute and a half. Um, You know, when everything was done here, we're getting ready to open up schools on Monday. You know, we had a professional company come in um, and they contracted with a second company and they came in and cleaned all the areas that we'd asked them to clean based on my conversations with the experts. So anywhere that the incident command was in my elementary school, from classrooms to cafeterias, the hallways to where the Red Cross shelters were, the we had all of that clean. Well, I made an all call and said to families that all three of the buildings were deep cleaned. Just an efficient statement. They were well, people came in and said, well, you didn't clean this area. Well, this area wasn't impacted by what we were doing. So I wasn't specific enough in my communication. And it created about a week's worth of headaches here um, with mm-hmm. people that were upset that we were misleading them. And that certainly was not the intent in any way. So communications were a definite positive for us. We continued to, to let people know, and, and we still do that today as to what's going on. But not choosing my words carefully also created a real negative and looking at what a lot of the media did in that communication piece created a negative. So, so from my standpoint, I would say that's probably one of the most important pieces to what we did is that communication piece. Yeah, that's really helpful. Uh, How would you have, if you were going to go back and do that interview again, or make that statement, what measure would you put in place for you to help you think through your statements and what you say publicly? Would there be, would you have put like what process or would you do differently next time? You know, I, I I probably would have, you know, as you can imagine during that time, you know, everything was rushed, right? Everything we were doing, because you were doing 15 different things at a time. And, and I know better than that, right? That's when you make mistakes is when you're rushing things. You know, if I would have taken an extra five minutes, and just reread that, had my secretary or somebody else take a look, because we always type those things out before we read them, right? Um, if I would have had somebody else take a look at that and I would have stopped for a minute, I, I'm sure I would have caught that. Um, but I just didn't. I didn't take the time because I knew what I was trying to say and made the assumption that everybody else would understand what I was saying as well. I really appreciate your candor on that. And I really appreciate you going deeper on it. Cause again, I mean, I've, I, it's happened to me. I know a lot of people dialing into this, this has happened or it will. Um, so you've just given us a masterclass on, you know, how to think about crisis communications and strategic communications and that there are times that we have to slow down, take a few deep breaths, bounce it off somebody, sanity check it before we, 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 you know, we, we walk out there and you, cause you can't, it's hard to pull it back. You spend, you spend four or five days uh, trying to adjust it. Another thing though, that I've noticed about the, is that you have, you had a real, you have a really good pre-existing culture of communication that you had built long before the crisis happened. Talk a little bit about that, Chris. Sure. So, so we, when I got here eight years ago, uh, we were in academic emergency, uh, also financial emergency. 
And one of the things that the state of Ohio has in place is, is their Ohio improvement process. Um, I had been in a district prior that was um, that I was well-trained in that process. And when I came here, we took about four to six months to kind of get that set up here. Um, so we now have a very good cyclical system that flows from top to bottom um, and, and back. So we have our teacher-based teams, which meet, you know, we changed our schedule. Our, our teachers have 50 minutes every day without kids before the school day starts. It provides opportunity for staff meetings, for professional development, for co-planning, uh, for our teacher-based teams where we talk about strategies and data, you know, so those things are all scheduled out on a weekly basis. There are representatives from each one of those teams that, that then meet monthly on our building leadership team. Talk about how at the building level, we can support what's going on in the classrooms, um, what resources and things they need. And then that flows up to our district leadership team, uh, which also meets monthly to talk again about what's happening all the way down into the classrooms and how we can support that at the district level. So it allows us to review data. It allows us to set reasonable goals. It allows us to, to be able to build our strategic plan and our three to five year you know, goal set. And, and then that information then flows back down into the TBT. So, so real good cyclical communication process that allows, you know, we had two different situations, even during this, the first month where we said, okay, teachers, here's three things that we need to know from you. We, we were very specific in our questioning. So that information made its way all the way up to the district leadership team and helped us to make the right decisions to drive the district forward based on their needs. I don't know that we would have gotten that information and that input from teachers if it wasn't for that specific structure that we've been running here now for, for seven solid years. Yeah. And such a, you know, when you told me this, I just thought, man, what a solid, solid thing to have a culture of good open communications, bottom up, top down before a crisis occurs. Uh, because, you know, once the crisis occurs, that's really not the time to be building a communication system. I mean, it's certainly probably okay to reach out and, you know, to a PR group to help you. And it was great that you had a pre-existing relationship with, with that. But creating a culture of communications is, a, is something to start now when risk is low uh, and leveraging it when risk is high, which is what you did. One other thing I just want to call out before I, I give you a couple of wrap-up questions, but, you know, something you talked about with the media, and, and I, I am going to just provide a little bit of commentary because I know we have reporters on here and, broadcasters and others. And I think your point, Chris, about, you know, there is a certain moral responsibility that goes when you have the microphone and you have an audience to just randomly assign or not randomly, but, you know, deliberately assign labels to stories and communities and events because it, it gets ratings uh, or it moves the needle is, you know, there's 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 a need to understand that that has secondary and tertiary effects on the people who have to live under those labels. And while it may seem easy at the time, there's a human cost to it, isn't there? Uh, absolutely. I mean, you know, like like I mentioned earlier, I mean, I, I use the the label fear mongering and and that's a lot of what happened. And, and that's when we look at, at the changes we've made to our strategic plans here in the district, that was priority one for us is we now have to rebrand and rebuild our reputation right. because that's who we became. You know, I, I have, you know, relatives all over the country that were calling me worried about, you know, my health and safety. And, and I kept saying to them, guys, look, I, 
You want to worry about somebody, worry about the first responders that were there that night, worry about the people that live 500 feet from where that happened. I'm good. I'm good. The environment's good. We've tested it. We've looked at it. We continue to monitor it. But that all happened because of, of the media. You know, yeah. my, my treasurer went on a trip very short after that. He was in California, mentioned that he was from Ohio. And the first question was, you anywhere near that East Palestine place? California. You know, so so it's those pieces that that play a major role. And I'll tell you, I had multiple by multiple, I mean, four or five situations where I called reporters out on things that they had written that just weren't true. Yeah, they just weren't true. You know, yeah. so when you make that phone call and say, hey, did you fact check this? Because this isn't true. Well, no, we tried, but we had a deadline. We had to. Pu- That's mind boggling to me. I know. That you had to publish something. And they did. And every one of those situations went back and corrected it after the fact. But the damage was already done. Already done. It's already the done. The damage was already done because 15 other people already took that information and posted it somewhere else on social media. And I can't correct all of that. So how has that affected where you are now, Chris? And what's going on in East Palestine now? Where are, where are you with things? And where do you go from here? So so the biggest issue I would say that we're running into now, again, is dealing with that reputation. So we're we're into, um, you know, we're into spring sports season. We have uh, the largest track here in the county. Uh, We hold a a number of larger invitationals. So typically, you know, 25, 30 teams. You know, our second big one was just this past weekend. I had nine teams here. Um, You know, we only had we had 19 teams sign up. And then within a couple of days, we we had of the event happening, we had 10 teams drop out. So we did some research um, and found out that somewhere out on social media in a county, a couple places away from us here, you know, a couple counties away, um, there was a big post about there being this outbreak here of pink eye and some other illnesses that kept people away. Well, nobody called us and asked. They saw it on Facebook. They saw it on social media. It must be true. We can't go there. Wow. You know, so that's probably the biggest thing. We've had a number of tournaments canceled, games canceled. Um, It's getting better, but it's going to take us time. Um, And and we've tried to be proactive. I talked about the number of, of entities that are here working with us. You know, when we started to see this problem, I reached out to the EPA and the county health department, uh, the governor's office. You know, so we held a session here where we invited everybody to come and hear from the experts. Come here yeah. yourself as superintendents, as principals, as athletic directors. Come and see for yourself. Come and ask the questions. Come and look at the data. And that has helped us, but we still haven't we haven't overcome that hump yet. We'll we'll get there. Time helps. We know that, right? Time will help to heal all wounds. Um, and we just have to continue to be proactive and and sell our sell our product here. Yeah. And I think keep telling the story. We need to get you in the red circle and get some other people up there on the stage talking and telling the story because, you know, stories provide the brain with new patterns, particularly when the brain is operating out of fear. You know, the brain pulls old stories. And so, you know, bringing new patterns to bear for people, not just, you know, in your in your neighboring counties, but I think around the country, I think this is a narrative that, um, based on the interviews I've been doing with your leaders, there is a concerted effort underway to put the real competing narrative out there. And that's my hope that this platform will assist with that as well. What to close it out, Chris, what do you, and in that vein, 
what would you like people outside of East Palestine to know about what's going on there and, um, you know, how they might help uh, to um, to move to better ground and, 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 you know, help in any way possible for you guys to just, you know, get to a place where you feel like you want to be after all this. You know, there's certainly has been a lot of conversation about that, Scott. And, 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 you know, we, we do talk a lot with, with Norfolk Southern and, and, you know, that was one of the things that, that the CEO said to me, um, Alan Shaw, the, the first time I met with him was that, you know, they want to work with us, not, not just us as a school, but us as an entire community to, to help us to thrive again. And, and, you know, I, I really reflected on that for a long time after we had our first meeting in the thought that what does this look like? Because we weren't necessarily thriving before this accident. You right. know, we were a small community taking care of each other, um, doing the best we could with what we have. Um, so how do we go from that, deal with a traumatic accident that we had and come out thriving at the other end? And I think that's the piece that we're working on now you know, help from other people, just really kind of understanding, you know, that that trust that, you know, this is a safe environment to come to. Would I ask you to go and roll around in the dirt on the railroad tracks or play in Sulphur Run with or Leslie Run? No, I wouldn't ask you to do that right now. We had contamination. But to label East Palestine as a whole as something like Toxic Town USA is just not true. And it does no justice to the people that are here you know, the hardworking, resilient people of East Palestine that are going to get through this and are going to come out better on the other side. Just that support would be enough. Yeah, because it's harmful to do otherwise. And um, I, I really appreciate that, man. Um, again, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed my visit there, how much I learned about leadership and 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 just stepping up and doing the right thing when nobody's looking. And, and you guys did that. You continue to do that. Um, you know, you really are, I think, uh, nationally a model for what leadership looks like when things go south and when when nobody's coming, you know, and 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 so we'll continue to illuminate what you're what you're doing here. Chris, is there anything that we haven't covered um, about any of this that you feel like we need to? No, I mean, it just it, I want to make sure that that we thank again, you know, all the people that have shown up here, Scott, I mean, even that night, that first 24 hours, the number of first responders from three different states, from counties all over the place that just came in here to try and do what was right for our people. I mean, we went through this, this major accident with no real injuries, no fatalities, no major property damage. Um, you know, and that speaks volumes to the work that was done immediately by the first responders and the, and the people that were here. You know, also having had the opportunity and, and a thank you and a kudos to these people, the different organizations like the EPA and the National Guard. And, you know, they came in here with no ties to East Palestine and, and worked and did their jobs to the absolute best of their ability to make sure that they did what they could to help this small community that was dealing with, with a, an accident and a, and a tragedy. So just want to make sure that we give thanks to those people because there's a lot of people working behind the scenes and I know they're not doing it for the thanks, but they deserve it. Yeah. I love it, man. I love it. Thank you for that. Thanks to all of them. And, and, and I, I thank you for your leadership there. I know you'll keep 
bringing folks together and, and showing us what it looks like. Uh, hopefully we can have you back on maybe uh, down the road and, and get an update on where things are. Uh, for those of you who are listening and watching, um, you know, dig into this, this series that we're doing because there's some really phenomenal leaders here with and without titles who are, who are modeling community-based leadership, who are modeling interpersonal skills, crisis management. There's so much we can learn from this in real time. And then I would ask you to share these stories wherever you can across the country. Share these interviews because we do need to put the real narrative out there and outcompete uh, this fear-mongering that has happened and is really causing harm uh, with the folks that are just trying to put their lives back together. And that's what we would ask if we were going through this as well. And you have an opportunity to do that simply by sharing these podcasts uh, with people uh, who, who could use it. And then if you want to put a review for us on there, we'd love that as well. Uh, we we want to continue to grow this thing organically. Chris, thank you so much for being on. It means a lot. I know you're super busy uh, at school right now, so I'll let you get back to it. But thank you for being on with us. Uh, really enjoyed having you on. Yeah, thanks, Scott. Thanks for the opportunity. Anytime. I appreciate all the time that we've had to spend together and, and look forward to doing it again in the future. Yes, sir. We'll keep it going. And to all of our listeners and viewers, thanks for what you do. And uh, we'll see you on the rooftop.